0: Hey, Jude is an interesting book. Um, It's got a lot of unique things in it. Uh, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Just remember that uh, Jesus' brothers, he had physical brothers, half-brothers, who didn't believe that he was the Messiah until after he died and rose again from the dead. And then they become prominent figures in the church. And so Jude is one of those. And he writes to a group of people that are experiencing false teachers that are quietly impacting the church. And what's so unique about this book is he uses some obscure and sometimes really complicated examples. And he refers to some Jewish traditions and Jewish writings that are not from the Bible, that are outside of the Bible. So if we're not careful what will happen, and I'm going to try not to do this today. If we're not careful, we're going to get distracted by all of that unique stuff and miss the point. And so I'm going to try to keep us on the point, and some of you are going to go, oh, I wish you would have explained that better. I'm going to invite you to either ask me questions later, or you can go and do some study and research on your own to answer some of these unique things that we're going to see in this. In fact, just a little commercial here. One of my favorite online sources is called Enduring Word. So if you just punched in Enduring Word Jude, it would pop up a whole online commentary, and you could read through it and maybe get some of the answers to some of the obscure things that you're curious about. So this morning we're not going to solve all those complexities, but we're going to focus on what it means to contend for the faith. And there are three things, the, the book is kind of divided into three, three categories. One is the opening charge, where he's going to charge us to contend for the true Christian faith. And then verses 5 through 19, there's going to be these accusations against the false teachers that are sneaking in. And then verses 20 to 24, the end of it, is the final charge about how to build up a firm foundation of faith... If you're going to have to contend for it, you need to have a firm foundation for it. And so early on at the beginning of the church, there are already false teachers from the very beginning that were infiltrating the church and all, Paul writes about them and John writes about them, Peter writes about them, and now Jude is writing about them as well and what we need to do to protect ourselves from those who come in and try to teach something other than the truth of the Bible, okay? So he starts out with the opening charge to contend for the true Christian faith. And now we're going to just work our way through it. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, um, Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. If you want to look it up on your phone, if you do need a Bible, we have some in the back. And you can grab one and follow along today. Here's how he starts out. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Interesting, he doesn't say that he's a brother of Jesus. He doesn't try to use that. He's just saying, I'm a servant of Jesus. And I am the brother of James, and that kind of helps people understand who he was. James was a little bit more prominent. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, they're beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Hey, we're going to slow down and just take that apart a little bit and just think about that. Here's how he starts out, to those of you who are called. Called and are the children of God. If you have put your faith in Christ today, you have been called. You are a called one. And look what he says. He calls you beloved. Beloved in God the Father. Now, what I I want you to do today in some of these things that we're talking about is to write your name in it. Because I'm going to use the more general like you and me and all. But this is specific for you. You have been called and you are beloved in God the Father. And listen, listen to this, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who's doing all this great work? God's doing it, isn't it? He's calling you. He's telling you that you're beloved and God the Father, and you're being kept by Jesus Christ. That's good news, and I'm telling you, when you're thinking about the loss of a loved one, this is kind of the news that you hold on to, right? That he was called like you were called, and my dad was beloved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And for those of us living here now, then he gives us this next piece. Listen, you're called, you're beloved by God the Father, you're kept by Jesus Christ, and and he means this with a great deal of sincerity. We should never see words in Scripture and just get used to them. We should see the meaning of them, the importance of it. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So he's saying to this church that he loves, he says, listen, I'm praying, I'm hoping that you will experience the mercy of God and it'll just keep getting multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, not addition, multiplication times infinity, that you would just relish and live and be immersed in the mercy of God. And he says, you're called, you've been beloved by God the Father, you're being kept by Jesus Christ and may you experience the mercy that comes from all of that. And then he says, may you, may mercy and then peace, that you would experience this overwhelming sense of peace, of a place of being right with God and be, having things being settled with God, and that that might multiply. Again, put your name in it. Jude wants that for you. God wants that for you. Your pastor wants that for you, that you may experience mercy and it might be multiplied over and over again. You might experience a peace that is multiplied by infinity. And that you might experience love, the love that God has for you, and really know it, and really experience it. That it would be multiplied to, to you, and your experience of it will grow, and you'll have a deeper understanding of it. So he doesn't waste words in those first two verses. That's, that's what he wants them to understand, and what he wants to see happen in their lives. He wants them to understand that they're beloved by God, that they've been called, and they're kept by Jesus And he wants them to experience mercy and peace and love multiplied over and over again. And then he says this, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He goes, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation and just have some time to rejoice in that. But he said, I found because of the circumstances that you're in, it's necessary to write to you that I need you to, I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith. It's been delivered to you by the saints, but now you need to contend for it. Contend is like this picture of like pushing back against or fighting for or agonizing over or maybe even like standing firm when other forces are trying to push against it. And so he, want, he says, I want you to contend for it because there are forces that are coming into the church that are, are going to be against this gospel against this common salvation, and I want you to be ready to contend for it. So, what's happening? Verse four, he says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed. So, in their fellowship, as it was growing, there are those who would come in, and he calls it kind of sneaky. They cre- creep in unnoticed, who long ago were designed for this condemnation. They were ungodly people, and this is what they're going to do. They're going to pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that this group is going to do, they're going to pervert grace, and they're going to pervert it this way. They're going to say, hey, you've been saved by grace. That's so awesome. Now you can go and do whatever you want to do. Just live any way you want to live, because grace has got you. Grace has got you covered. And so that was, the, in this case, that was the perversion of grace that they were dealing with a group of teachers that were coming in with their own agendas saying, just do what you want because you're covered by God's grace. And it had something to do with sensuality. Some sort of sexuality and a sexual expression was connected to it. So they were saying, hey, you have, you're, you're covered by grace. Just go do whatever you want with your body and don't have to think about God's design or how God wants things. And he uses the word sensuality, and that's simply kind of a, a, a term that they're talking about sensual things and sexual things and the next thing that they're going to do not only they're going to pervert grace and they're going to say just the kind of holiness that god has put around and the parameters god has put around sex don't worry about that and then the next thing they're going to say is that they're going to deny jesus christ is the lord and master so you can kind of see this progression they pervert grace And then they kind of give people what they want to hear about sensuality and sexuality. And then they go over here and they say, oh yeah, and by the way, Jesus isn't really the Lord and Master. He's really not the King. He's really not the one that you should listen to. In fact, all the things that he has taught, well, wherever we like it, then we'll agree with it, these teachers would do. And whatever we don't like, we'll say, oh, that's not a big deal. He's really not the Lord and Master. So you can see how dangerous this was you can see how big of a deal this was and you can see why Jude says I want you to contend for the faith because these forces were coming in and teaching things that were not of God and not of what Christ taught and now he's going to get into these accusations and here's what I want you to hear a little bit this morning is I want you to hear that with all the mercy and grace and the goodness of God and all of the love that he shows us there is a side of God that we can't forget that God will judge right and God will judge people, and God will judge sin. And this next part is the accusations about how, how Jude sees these things and how he connects them with things that we've seen in the past. And if you've been part of the thread or if you know your Old Testament, you're going to see some of these connections. So this is what he does now in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, listen to that now, who saved them out of the land of Egypt? Jesus saved them out of the land of Egypt, but then afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And then the angels, verse 6, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there are essentially three warnings that he gives here. He says Jesus saved the Israelites out of Egypt and yet brought judgments on those who didn't believe. Okay, So he saves them, rescues them out of being in in enslavement. But then those who didn't believe, faith, those who don't believe, got judged. Then he talks about the angels who rebelled against God and they faced judgment. So there was those who didn't believe and then the angels in their rebellion and then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now listen to Ezekiel 16 talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. It says this, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and an abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Sodom and Gomorrah, besides the sexual immorality that Jude points out, Ezekiel reminds us that they had a whole bunch of offenses against God. They didn't care for the poor. They had plenty, and they didn't take care of those who were in need. And so one commentator put it like this, sexual depravity was not their only sin, but it was certainly among their sins. And Jude makes this plain. So he's saying these are these three things now. The first one is there's a judgment that comes because they didn't believe. The second one is there was a rebellion. And the third one is, again, this. And I think the way to think about this sensuality and the sexuality that Jude is talking about here is what we're going to see at other places as we move along. It's the use of the physical body in ways that are other than what God designed it for. And when you think about it like this, that God has created men and women in his image, so we are image bearers of God. And our bodies are not our own to do whatever we want to with. What does the Apostle Paul tell us? That our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that we talk about here is the idea of using our bodies in any way that we want to use them instead of the ways that God has designed them to be used. And one of the places we find that is in sexual immorality. Using the body in a way that's other than the design in which God has designed it. And that's one of the things that the enemy tries to do all the time. To destroy the physical body which is created the physical body and the person which is created in the image of God. And so... We matter as image bearers. How we live and how we treat our lives and how we treat our bodies and the flesh, how we treat our minds, how we treat our spirits and our souls, all of that matters because we're created in the image of God. And what's happening here is these guys are coming in, just like we saw in the Old Testament, to none of that matters. Do what you want to do. And that's what we're going to see. They're going to be teaching, do what you want to do. So this is what he says in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also... Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious one. Now he gives us some more pictures of what these teachers are doing. Just like we see these examples in the Old Testament, now we see these teachers. Instead of teaching what the Old Tes- uh, from the Old Testament, instead of teaching what Jesus taught, t- instead of teaching what the apostles taught, they're relying on their own dreams. Can you imagine it? Just somebody walking in here saying, I had this dream. Now you all have to just do what I think. Instead of going, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? What do the apostles say? They were relying on their own dreams. Then here again, he says they defile the flesh, acting in ways and treating the body in ways that defile the body in God's eyes. Defile it according to how God sees things. And when we do it differently than how God sees it, it's a defilement. And again, most likely they're acting in sexual ways that are outside of God's design. And then the third part here is they're rejecting authority. Just the same thing as the examples we just saw earlier. They're rejecting authority, and this meant essentially, and this is where we find ourselves in our world today, essentially they wanted to be their own authority. They didn't want to be under any authority. They reject the authority of God. They rejected the authority of the people that God put in oversight over his church. And they essentially said, I want to be my own authority. I want to be the authority in my life. And finally, it says they blaspheme the glorious ones. Essentially, when, they say, when he says that, this is what's happening. And maybe you can think about seeing this in the world even today. They attribute things to Satan that should be attributed to God. And the things that should be attributed to God, they attribute to Satan. They essentially call evil good and good evil. So these teachers have come in and they're doing all of this stuff and Judas concerned. And now he gives them some other, these are the obscure examples. I'm going to go kind of quickly through them because I'm going to show you the point, not get caught up in the all the details. Verse 9, he says, when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. All he's really trying to say there in this very obscure verse is that God hasn't called us to judge the devil he hasn't called us to interact with the devil hasn't called us to get into debates with the devil he says just to condemn the devil and to not get caught up in that kind of thing but to battle against him in the name of the Lord and so when that happens when we find ourselves in places where there's actually demonic presence when we're actually feeling like we're being pressured by Satan the idea is not to get into a big interaction or debate it's to rebuke in the name of Jesus and so he was saying, even the archangel Michael, just said, I rebuke you. I'm not messing around with you, okay? And so he's saying that that's the kind of response we should have towards false teaching, is say, I rebuke you. Verse 10, I know this is getting a little confusing, but hang in there with me, because there's some good stuff coming up. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they destroy, and they are destroyed by all that they are, like unreasoning animals, understanding instinctively. He says they're, they're actually acting just like brute beasts. These false teachers were coming in, they're just like animals, acting in, with instinct. They weren't like human beings. Think about this, when you, if you've watched a movie, like a zombie movie or something like that, right? They're not a human being anymore, right? And sometimes that's how we can act in the world we live in. We can be so instinctive and we're just acting as brute beasts and not the way God designed us. Here's how he designed us. He designed us with reason. He designed us with the spirit. He designed us with a mind. He designed us with emotions. He designed us with a conscience. And those are the things that God wants to use and work in our lives so that we act like human beings. And he was saying, "What these people were doing acting like unreasoning animals. And he said, that's going to lead them to destruction. And they're going to lead other people to destruction. And now he warns them one more time in verse 11. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain, and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Now you might be like, okay, what's that all about? Real quickly, they walked in the way of Cain. Cain didn't walk by faith. We see this picture again. Again, we see these threefold things repeated over and over again. Now we're talking about faith and belief. Cain, it wasn't about whether he brought fruit or one brought an animal sacrifice. It was about the attitude that they brought it with, and Cain did not bring his by faith. And Jewish readers would know these stories. We're not as familiar with them, but the Jewish readers of Jude's day would know these stories. This is what Hebrews 11.4 says about Cain and Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. He's saying the issue is faith, not the type of sacrifice. And we see it again in 1 John 3.12. It tells us that Cain murdered his brother because Abel's works were righteous or were by faith, while Cain's own were wicked. Cain's issue is not a lack of works. Cain's issue was an issue of faith. Now that's the first one. The second one example is Balaam. And Balaam used sensuality to lead people, uh, is, the Israelites astray. And so now we get that issue of sensuality again. And he's using this example of Balaam who used sensuality to trick the armies of Israel. And then finally we get Korah. There's the authority again. Korah was the one who led a rebellion against Moses and denied the authority of, of God's leaders. And God had to judge them for that. And so they denied those people that were in authority. Okay, now you're going like, okay, what's this all about? This is getting a little, little bit out there. Hang in there with me for a few more verses, and then we're going to wrap it up with, I think, something that really is going to encourage you. Here's what he's saying, what happens with these leaders. They become like, this is what he says, they're hidden reefs. They're, they're, they're like shepherds that feed first, and they don't care about their flocks. They're like waterless clouds, he says in verse 12. They're swept along by the wind. They're like fruitless trees. They're like trees that have been uprooted twice and replanted and they're still dead. They're like wild waves of the sea that have lots of foam but don't really have much power behind them. And to their own shame, they're like wandering stars. And he said there's a place in outer darkness reserved for them forever. And then he goes on, he uses a few more examples about judgment that's going to come upon them. And he reminds us that it's a serious thing to come into God's church and to lead it astray. And God will bring justice and God will bring um, judgment on those who do that and who come in and do those things. I'll just read what he says in 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. God's coming with his angels to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. He says ungodly a lot there, right? And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he tells us how they do it. They're grumblers, they're malcontents, they're following their own sinful desires, they're loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So they grumble because things don't go the way that they want them to go. They're malcontents because they, the things they want to see happen are not the things of God. They follow their own sinful desires. They just want to do whatever they want to do. They're loud and boisterous because they think that that somehow will distract us from the falseness of what they're saying. And then the most serious one of all is they manipulate people. They come alongside people and manipulate them to get the results that they want. Now, If you've totally lost me, stop, (laughs) come back, because here it is. This is where this gets important. He says, you've got to remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there's going to be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They're... Peter talked about them, Paul talked about them, Jesus talked about them, last days, scoffers, ungodly. They're going to teach and seek whatever they want to hear and whatever they want to believe. They're going to cause division, and this is the part that really strikes me from these verses. They're going to be devoid of the Spirit. They're going to see things in a way that is contrary to the teachings of Jesus, and they're going to act without the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. They're going to just do what they think and what they want to do. And because of these kinds of people, Jude is saying, contend for the faith. You see why this was important that I kind of unpack this a little bit, even though it might be confusing and a little weird and a little bizarre. He's saying, people are going to come in and that's why you have to contend for the faith. And to contend for the faith, you have to have a firm foundation. You have to have a firm faith. So this is where I want you to track with me for the last five minutes Because this is the most important part. He says, but you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Here he says it again. You're loved. You're beloved. Do you believe that today? You can't have a firm foundation that's going to contend against false teaching unless you believe that you're beloved. Unless you have a firm foundation of the love of God in your life. And then if you have that. Now you can start to build yourself up and what? Practice the most holy faith. Interesting words, isn't it? Holy faith. You see, it's a faith that sets you apart, but it's also a faith that's rooted in truth, and then that truth leads to obedience, and that's what holiness is. So it's a faith that then begins to dig deep down in us and put truth deeply in us, and a truth that then We start to obey, and that's a holy faith. Now, we don't do this perfectly, right? But that's what he wants to do in my life. He wants me to come to faith, and I'm set apart. I'm holy in my standing before him. But then he starts to do a work that teaches me what the truth is, and then faithfulness to the truth is obedience to it, and that becomes holiness. And he begins to change a guy like me and starts to make me more holy like Jesus. Now, I'm not holy like Jesus, but I'm holier than I used to be. And he is at work, and he is changing and transforming so that I will have a faith that is based on truth and obedience, a set-apart faith in which then I am walking in holiness and be able to contend for the faith. And he says the next part is, and you have to pray in the Holy Spirit. So the building of a firm foundation of a holy faith is to stand firmly in the truth, walk in obedience to the truth, praying with the power of the Holy Spirit to contend and to know the truth. And then he says this, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's saying stand firm. And you see how all these verses are connected. Standing firm in the love of God, knowing it, experiencing it, believing it. Standing firm, put your name in there. Keep yourself, keep Dean in the love of God. Put your name in it, standing firm, knowing it, experiencing it, believing it, and then trusting the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. i got to ask you this morning, do you trust the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you need to. That's your only hope. (laughs) The only hope that I have that I'm going to see my dad again one day is the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so he says, trusting the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be true, and he will show mercy, and he will do what he said he's going to do. And he says, trusting in that mercy, verse 21, leads to eternal life. So keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and trusting it, holding on to it, because it's going to lead you to eternal life. And then he has this great verse, and some of us could probably say amen this morning in verse 22, and he says, and then... Have mercy on those who doubt. He says, listen, keep yourselves. Stand firm. But sometimes we doubt. And he says, when you're standing firm and when you're in a good place and you see that brother or sister who's in doubt, then say, go get in their face and get really angry and try to hammer away at them. Have mercy. And stand there and go, hey, man, I'm with you. Let's talk this through together. Let me be there for you when you're in your dark moment of doubt. And so when people, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. And then he says in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He's saying this, then for others, save them, snatch them out of the fire. Show them mercy, but also the fear of warning and And knowing that sin is something we all should hate, and so when a brother is struggling with sin, we should also warn him as well as snatch him away. When a sister is struggling with sin, we warn her and try to snatch her away. And those who are ignoring God's holiness and saying, I can do whatever I want to do, it doesn't matter, he's saying, warn them, but do so with mercy. And then this just blows me away. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All right, I really want you to see this this morning. I desperately want you to see this this morning. There is one who is able to keep you from stumbling. And there is one who can present you blameless. And he not only presents you blameless into his glorious presence, is where he brings you. And guess what? This is the part that I love in this verse. He's gonna do it with great joy. He's not gonna grumble and say, Man, I gotta let this Dean Paulson guy in after all the ways he screwed up. I gotta die on the cross for him. I gotta let. He's gonna do it with joy, not grumbling about how he has to let somebody into his glorious presence. Listen, this is what he's doing. He's going, finally, finally, you and I can meet face to face. Finally, you and I can have a personal relationship, God is saying. Finally, you, I've been waiting for you. I've been wanting you to come into my glorious presence, and I invite you in with great joy. Can you picture it? That God has great joy of having you come into his presence. And he's done a great work so that you could be forgiven of your sins and be able to come into his presence. I just love this last part. It just blew me away this week with great joy. Even more, he's saying, finally, you can meet me face to face. And even more than that, you can now be called my people. And even more than that, you can be called my sons and daughters. And he's going, finally, finally. I created you to be my sons and daughters. I created you to be able to call me father, but your sin and your rebellion has kept us apart. And you were far from me, but I made a way. I made a way for you to be able to be seen as blameless so that you can come into my glorious presence and not die. And I'm so filled with joy that you and I are now able to come into, this is what God's saying, I'm so filled with joy that you are now in my presence as my sons and daughters. Can you see it? Can you see God inviting you like that? Into his glorious presence with great joy? I tend to sometimes think of God thinking about me, usually with a lot of disappointment. Let me ask you this question. I did this for 20 years at a Christian college. Does God love you? Most everybody says yes. Does God like you? I've asked that question for 20 years, and I've had student after student break down in tears in my office. No, he doesn't really like me. He loves me because he's got to, because he's God. He doesn't really like me, because, man, I'm just who I am. I'm this and I'm that. I'm this and I'm that. Do you see in this passage, he's saying, it's with great joy that I'm inviting you in. I actually like you too. (laughs) Not only do I love you, our God says, I like you. I want you to be in my presence. I've gone to great lengths so that you could be in my presence. And it's with great joy that I invite you in. And so with that as the background, The only possible response is verse 25. With this God who says it's with great joy that I invite you into my holy presence, our response should be verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. He's saying, at the end of the day, you contend for the faith. You get invited into the holy presence of God and he invites you in with great joy. Your response is to go, oh my gosh, to the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forevermore.